Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger. And I just want to start with a, a bit of an apology. I mean, in some circumstances, we might have done an emergency pod after the Texas SB8 decision was announced. In fact, that would have been a lot of fun. But I had a good excuse, Sarah. My oldest daughter was graduating from the real UT. Uh, so we were in Knoxville when the decision was handed down. And we were also helping her move, her and her husband and and uh, baby Lila helping them move. So it just, it wasn't in the cards. Sorry. Um, another time we will do an emergency pod, but this one, so just mea culpa, family commitments had to trump emergency pod, our deep apologies. But uh, this is still, it's only Monday. I mean, this is pretty recently after the decision. Uh, and so we'll just dive into it. We're going to do that. We're also going to talk about a Ninth Circuit um, vaccine mandate case that denied religious exemptions to a school vaccine mandate in uh, the Unified School District of San Diego. But before we get into those two cases, let's start with another case, just a brief discussion of a state criminal case involving Jesse Smollett. That was also his, he was convicted and I know, Sarah, you had some thoughts on it. So let's start with your thoughts. Then we'll dive in to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So remember, this is the hate crime hoax case. He says that he's attacked. They yell uh, racial and homophobic slurs at him and then put a noose around his neck. Uh, there's countless number of man hours spent by Chicago PD on this. Uh, it comes out later that perhaps he hired the two men who attacked him, that they were uh, friends of his from the show or whatever else, these two brothers. Um, and so he is charged and convicted on uh, five of six counts on, um, on, you know, lying, filing false reports, yada, yada. First of all, a juror has come out afterwards to discuss it. One of the female jurors, it was a split uh, six, six female male jury to say that actually they knew right away they were going to convict him, um, but they wanted to go over all of the evidence again. So they took about nine hours to deliberate. It just gives me some faith in our jury system, not the outcome, but the process. I, I like that, that they went in. And even though they, I guess, had the votes at that point, they were like, you know what, though? Like, there's a lot of people watching this. A lot of people want confidence in it. Let's just make very sure that we're sure about our opinion after reviewing the evidence. Um, but something stands out to me, David. So several months ago, I think it was back in June, the defense raised a double jeopardy problem. And the judge declined to dismiss on double jeopardy grounds. The case went to trial, but they have preserved that for appeal. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, it kind of looks like Cosby to me, David. I'm not sure this conviction is going to stand. And I understand it's sort of a small ball conviction, but it's gotten yeah. a lot of media attention. Yeah. So I kind of thought it might be worth talking about. You know, you and I talked a lot about the Cosby case. He got out of prison on double jeopardy grounds. Remember that they had a non-prosecution agreement, which um, in that case paved the way basically to force Cosby to testify at a civil trial. And his comments at the civil trial were then used against him in the criminal trial. Kind of a no-brainer on double jeopardy grounds. Um, however, when it comes to trials, guilty pleas, all of that, it does get kind of messy. So on trial, for instance, usually double jeopardy attaches when the jury is sworn in. Uh, or the first witness testifies. It can can vary a little from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but basically when the trial starts, double jeopardy attaches, okay? In a guilty plea, it is normally when the uh, guilty plea is accepted, actually. So the court has to accept the guilty plea. That's when double jeopardy attaches, although, interestingly, there's a bit of a circuit split on that. All right, so here we get, though, to Smollett. Remember, there's the controversy over the fact that the first prosecutor drops the charges against him. And then there's discussion over why was that prosecutorial misconduct at the time? Uh, it was a slam dunk case in a lot of ways, as obviously has been evidenced here by this trial. She agrees to drop the charges in exchange for him relinquishing his $10,000 bond. 
But that's it. He doesn't have to admit guilt. There's no incriminating stuff. It's $10,000. And the question is, is that more similar to Cosby or less similar to Cosby? On the one hand, the Cosby one has an actual implication at his trial. Right. No question that the Cosby verdict to me is correct as horrible the outcome as it may be. But here there's still a reliance factor, David. He paid $10,000 in exchange for that being dropped. $10,000 to Jesse Small, it may not be a lot of money, but this needs to be precedential in that sense. So it is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, On the other hand, no guilty plea, no admission of guilt, nothing that implicates him at his then when charges are filed. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of sketchy. I think this is a real issue for appeal. It it is an issue for appeal. I mean, because the fact of the matter is he's walking into court essentially having paid $10,000 for the offense to begin with. Now, as you're saying, it doesn't necessarily implicate the Cosby situation where the fact that he entered into that Cosby entered in the non-prosecution agreement then created his forced the dynamic upon him to create the incriminating testimony here. I didn't follow this case nearly as closely as about half of Twitter, (laughs) which seemed to be pretty obsessed with it. Um, But my sense is that the non-prosecute, the initial non-prosecution wasn't instrumental to his conviction in, you know, in, in, in this case. So there's a little bit of a different dynamic in play, but the, if the fact of the matter is if you've been charged and a charge has been dropped on the condition that you incur a penalty of some sort. That's right. Yeah. As was that the penalty? Yeah. Uh, even though there was no admission of guilt, that's not that different than an Alfred plea. The problem is, of course, none of this is in writing, though it's all it was all known at the time and in newspapers, et cetera. I mean, it's a mess. Thank you, it's Chicago, for once again proving what a <sighs> fantastic jurisdiction you are in so many ways but that's all to say (laughs) uh keep an eye out on that because now he may choose not to appeal because this may not be worth it um i don't expect him to serve jail time but we'll see uh but i don't know he could want to appeal this because i think he has good grounds to appeal it yeah yeah you know i do think that's a very that is a very intriguing legal issue very intriguing but let me circle back to something you said earlier about the jurors um, look, there have juries have not always been great in this country, especially in the civil rights era in the South. I mean, in pre-civil rights era, post-reconstruction, I mean, good grief were their problems. But of late, of late, there's a really good case to be made that jurors are sort of a firewall helping keep us sane at the moment. In tough and complicated cases, jurors have weighed in in a way that's incredibly sober and serious and reached just conclusions in some of the most high-profile cases in a way that does build confidence in at least one aspect of our system. And so, you know, we, we point out a lot of things that are broken on this podcast. Um, one of the less broken parts of our system, and certainly one that's been functioning pretty darn well, is the, um, is the trial by jury, uh, particularly in some really high-profile cases of late. So shout out to you jurors. I'll even defend the OJ jury. Go for it. I, this is what <laughs> I want to hear this. Look, you can disagree on the outcome that they reached, but they reached it for the right reasons. They didn't believe the prosecution had met its burden, and it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if you're not totally sure that this person committed the murders that they were charged for, you should reach a not guilty verdict. And they did. And if you're gonna uh, fault one way or the other, they faulted the right way. You know, I'll say this. I, I'm not, I don't quite buy it. <laughs> I don't quite <laughs> buy it, Sarah. Uh, but I will say this as a half step of agreement with you. I, as someone who watched the trial pretty obsessively back in the day, one thing that I realized and, and I, you know, I was very, I mean, brand new in my legal career, but I was already at the point where I could notice that, wait a minute, what you're seeing on television is not what the jurors see. 
So if you're watching it on TV, you were seeing all of the arguments made to the judge. You were hearing all of the back and forth about evidentiary rulings. And so if you were watching the whole thing, including all of the arguments about evidence and motion practice before the judge, it was a lot more damaging to OJ than just what the jury saw. If you take out all of that other and you just watched what the jury saw, what the jury saw wasn't the same. What the jury saw was less uh, damaging to OJ, less compelling against OJ. But I still, I still can't get my head around that verdict. <laughs> I, I still cannot get my head around that verdict. So, yeah. Jurors, the jury system, as I said earlier, uh, certainly had major systemic flaws decades ago uh, in an entire region, an entire American region, and is still imperfect. But by golly, uh, of late, jurors have been sort of a bulwark uh, against, um, you know, they've been an institution that's been working of late. So I just Look, wanted David. to give them a shout out. If you haven't heard the theory that OJ's son is really the one who did it and he was protecting him. I don't know. It'll raise reasonable doubt. Oh my gosh. No, it will not. It will not. <laughs> it will not raise reasonable doubt. All right. Texas. Texas. Okay. Let's just go bottom line first, and then we'll, then we'll, we'll break it down. So the bottom line is, let's just repeat, this is not a case in where where abortion rights were substantively at issue. In other words, this case does not directly implicate Roe and Casey. What this case repli uh, implicates is the ability, the ability of a state to fashion laws to evade effective pre-enforcement challenge to likely unconstitutional laws. In other words, Typically, when the state passes a law that you believe is likely unconstitutional, you're going to have a clear opportunity to challenge the uh, enforcement of that law before its enforcement. In this circumstance, the law was deliberately designed to avoid a pre-enforcement challenge and to allow the law to go into effect before it could receive an effective, uh, there, before there could be an effective court ruling on its constitutionality. And so the way they did it is getting rid of state enforcement of the law almost entirely. The almost is important to what we're going to talk about and throwing the enforcement of the law into the hands of private parties who file their own lawsuits. We've talked about this as if this is your, if you're a longtime advisory opinions listener, none of this is new. And so then the question becomes, what can you do to block enforcement of a law that under current, under current uh, Supreme Court precedent is plainly unconstitutional under current Supreme Court precedent, but doesn't provide for state enforcement. And the answer, by and large, that the Supreme Court gave is effectively, you can't. You can't. Now, there's, there's a little bit of a... Um, there's a little bit of a, a caveat to that, but effectively you can't. And we'll just walk through the majority, the, the fundamentals of the majority's holding here. And the fundamentals are the following. Number one, the attempt to sue the judges and the clerks to block enforcement fails. Uh, and we'll get into the reasons why. Number two, the attempt to block uh, to block enforcement by suing the attorney general fails at the same time the attempt to block enforcement by suing some random dude who doesn't intend to sue anyone under the law fails what does succeed is that the attempt to block enforcement of provisions of texas law uh, against specific licensing licensing uh, officials succeeds but that doesn't do anything really to the underlying private lawsuits. That's the basic holding. And Sarah, you nobody can see you moving your hands like that. And I, she was kind of moving her hands like in the universal sign. Maybe, 
<laughs> and I agree with you that that's that's the interesting key question we need to drill down on. But that's the basic holding the fundamental um, dis, the the fundamental argument of the dissent. Uh, and I'm not talking about Sotomayor. I'm talking about the Chief Justice. The fundamental argument of the dissent is basically I'm gonna that they're gonna agree with a lot of the majority, except they're gonna say, "Hey, you're gonna be able to, sh you should be able to sue and get relief against state court clerks, to essentially block the filing of the case entirely, and because essentially otherwise, if you don't permit that, you've just evaded." Uh, you've just created a system that permits uh, uh, rampant temporary deprivation of constitutional rights, and it really and it threatens our constitutional structure. So that's the basics of it all. Uh, Sarah, what were your thoughts? Well, as uh, Josh Blackman over at Vala Conspiracy said, um, <laughs> he, I thought, uh, phrased this really nicely. My prediction based on oral argument was really, really wrong. I can't remember the last time I misjudged a case this badly. <laughs> I tried to read the tea leaves and I got burned. Ouch. Uh, but as he notes, I wasn't alone. More than 80% of the fantasy SCOTUS crowd predicted a 6-3 reversal. Wrong and wrong. Uh, yeah, so I uh, just all wrong. All my thoughts wrong. Even as the case dragged out. And everyone was like, ooh, this is pretty good for Texas. I was like, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, just wrong. That's why we play the game, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why you wait, wait for the opinion. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay. First, some interesting backroom questions. Who, since the chief was in the dissent, the mostly dissent, uh, who actually assigned the majority opinion? There's an argument that it was Thomas who assigned the majority opinion to Gorsuch, knowing that he would have to partially dissent from the part about the medical licensing uh, professionals. So um, that's just sort of weird right off the bat of like Gorsuch writing this. How, why, why not Alito? Why not Thomas? Um also, uh, you know, our own Declan Garvey of the Morning Dispatch was like, how do we describe this decision literally in terms of was it 5-4? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, no, kind of not. It was 8-1 on part of it. It was 5-4 on part of it. And it was 4-1-4 on part of it. <laughs> so... Yeah, if you're not a close follower of the Supreme Court, this was just a hard one to explain in short order. So, right, it's 8-1 that the medical licensing people can be sued. It's 5-4 um, that everyone else can't be sued. <laughs> and it's, uh, well, 4-1-4. 8 that the judges can't be sued? Uh, right. Yes. Eight one. Yeah. That the judges can't be sued. Yeah. Anyway, messy, 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 very messy, um, very messy. I thought that Gorsuch's opinion was very non-institutionalist, which makes sense. You know, this is, this is what we have said in ex parte young. This is what we've done this whole time. We're not going to make an exception. This isn't as extraordinary as people think it is. And we don't change the law for extraordinary reasons or else there is no law if every time we change it just based on what we think might be extraordinary. Um, in general, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. The problem for me is that ex parte young is already made up. This isn't real. Um, and so if you're gonna make up ex parte young, it's a little hard for me then to say like, yes, here, but no further. Well, it's interesting you, you let me let me stop you for one second because it's interesting you use the phrase non-institutionalist because if this was a precedent 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 decision which in an interesting way disrupts institutional norms. So, I, I, when I read Gorsuch, I was reading, my goodness, this guy is absolutely dedicated to precedent in this here decision. <laughs> yeah, but that's because it wasn't about the precedent. 
it was about not changing what the court does because one side argues that this is exceptional and so we need to create exceptional new law just to deal with this. That's what Gorsuch was rejecting. The fact that he rejects it by falling back on Ex parte Young, I think, was uh, a byproduct. But that, yeah, I guess I'm just curious about the term institutionalist or non-institutionalist in this context, because he's rejecting a change in precedent driven by extraordinary circumstances, which seems pretty, it's an interesting, yeah. I mean, I take your point, except I just don't think that he was saying we're relying on precedent because it's precedent. That's not to me why he was relying on ex parte young. Right. It was. he, oh, he had reasons. He had he reasons. He had reasons. Right. <laughs> he had reasons. Um, okay, so there's one part, though. Well, there's two parts worth really diving into here. The first part is the medical licensing people and why this very narrow opening is a lot bigger than I think people are acknowledging. And all the write-ups, right? It's 5-4, Texas law stays in place. There's no one to sue. You know, abortion is shut down in the state. That is... Uh, okay. So by um, allowing any of these lawsuits to go forward, they're allowing lawsuits to go forward in federal court. That's a very big deal because here's what's going to happen. This lawsuit can proceed now against the medical licensing professionals in this current iteration in a pre-enforcement posture. Uh, You will then have a federal court saying that the law is unconstitutional. Now the remedy can only be against the licensing professionals. So the law is unconstitutional. And as a result, because you are the only people party to this lawsuit, you may not uh, not give licenses to potential abortion clinics because of this law. That part, I think, is going to be very frustrating to people. But that first part is kind of where the money shot is. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have federal courts saying that this violates Roe and Casey. And that, while not binding on state courts, is used for its persuasive reasoning in Texas. And so all the state courts are going to have to at least grapple with the fact that a federal court interpreting federal law and precedent is saying that the Texas law is unconstitutional. That's not a small thing to come out of this case. And in fact, probably is the compromise with Kavanaugh and Barrett to keep this case alive. And so to say that this was some, you know, I think that actually Josh says, you know, I tried to read the tea leaves and I got burned. Yeah, you got the vote count wrong in some ways, but the outcome is not going to be that much different. There is still a pre-enforcement lawsuit that you can bring. You will still have federal courts finding SB8 unconstitutional, and that will still then reverberate through the rest of the judicial system, having the same outcome um, that would have been the case anyway. Mind you, of course, the state courts already finding summary judgment against this. Um, They're not putting in injunctive relief at this point, but this is working its way through to the result that was inevitable, at least in a pre-Dobbs world. Yeah. No, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, I the, the fact of the matter is, if you're going to get a ruling enjoining these licensing officials on the basis that from taking any action in their official capacities on the basis that this law is unconstitutional and you're a state trial court judge or a state appellate court judge, no, it's not binding on you. But if you're doing your job, if you're doing but but by the way, if you're doing your job, this is already <laughs> this was already directly contrary to precedent again with the big pre Dobbs um, with the big pre Dobbs uh, caveat to it. But yes, absolutely. Securing a judgment from a, uh, from a federal court that this law is unconstitutional and entering limited injunctive relief, even if it doesn't enjoin everyone in the world from filing a lawsuit does act as a quite effective legal defense to any of these lawsuits. It's crazy, by the way, a screw up on the part of Texas for not seeing, they worked so hard to make sure there weren't any state officials who could be sued in a pre-enforcement review. And they just didn't check all the cross-references, it looks like, to see that state licensing professionals, uh, officials would still be responsible for enforcing the title as a whole once it was amended. 
So it, it actually was an interesting oversight and one that I wonder when we get to California, whether they will fix. Yeah, exactly. So Texas almost hacked the system. Um, now, in, but one wonders if there wasn't an almost hack the system, if it Would was they have found something else. <laughs> exactly. Or if they just do what basically Robert says, which is, hey, look, I mean, ex parte young is precedent of this court. We can tweak it and we will here. We will now tweak it, which is essentially the Roberts ruling, which is, you know, no, we're not going to we're not going to sue, allow you to sue judges. Judges aren't really adversarial to you. They're they're not adversaries. They're adjudicators. Um, but we'll we'll let you block the clerks from processing these lawsuits. And and that strikes me as the potential if there wasn't this sort of needle that could be threaded here, uh, that as, as a, you know, a potential alternative, but yeah, that essentially the Roberts, the Roberts opinion is precedent is tweakable and we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. tweak it to preserve, you know, this constitutional order there where there is a high premium on pre-enforcement review. And especially when we feel like you, you're trying to engineer and specifically engineer a violation of this court's precedent and the ability to engineer violations of this court's precedent, at least for a period of time. And we see what you're doing. We see you. We know what you're doing. And we can adjust our precedent to stop you. So there. And that's essentially the Roberts decision or the Roberts dissent. Which, again, I'm somewhat sympathetic to because Ex parte Young is totally created out of whole cloth. Ex parte Young, in terms of facts, uh, is actually kind of similar. The law put into place had a huge chilling effect because the only way to strike down the law was to risk getting sued and paying these you know, enormous fines. And so the court was like, oh, okay, well, you can sue the attorney, the state attorney general um, in a, you know, this pre-enforcement fashion um, in order to, to adjudicate this ahead of time so you're not risking the fines. That's what we have here. In that case, though, the attorney general was sufficient to reach that. One can imagine if this was the first case to reach the court in an a la ex parte young fashion instead of the facts of ex parte young, who knows? Maybe the court would have said the clerks were fine. Um, that's where I'm like, well, this is the problem, whether it's qualified immunities, uh, clearly established test, or ex parte young, when you base an entire huge portion of fed courts on court precedent, you're going to run into weird problems like this. It's not law. It's not constitution. It's just precedent. Um, okay. <laughs> so not surprisingly, David, California comes out swinging. We have a statement from Gavin Newsom, the governor of California saying, cool, we're doing this now. No problem. I'm sending a bill to the legislature in California that will mimic this in every way possible. $10,000 fine uh, that any person can bring against someone who basically sells uh, an assault rifle or a ghost gun kit in the state of California. Everything else looks very similar. Um, as someone pointed out, you know, a big difference is the abortion restrictions were all getting struck down by courts. That was the need for SB8 that Texas saw. Whereas in California, all of their gun restrictions have been getting upheld. So it's a little weird to do it this way. But let me tell you why I think Newsom is making a huge mistake, like a big, big mistake. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Go. Big mistake, like pretty woman style. I'm holding the bags. You work on commission, right? Big <laughs> mistake. Um, Gavin Newsom seems to be under the impression that he's going to like show those conservatives at the court how hypocritical they are by doing it with guns and getting that to the Supreme Court. And then they're going to come out with a different opinion. And that's going to show that it was always about abortion. Yeah, you're wrong about this. Um, I don't think Gorsuch or any of these guys uh, think that at all. In fact, they will welcome, welcome the opportunity to have a completely consistent opinion on the Second Amendment, 
that will mirror this opinion exactly. You are, in fact, giving them the opportunity to be very consistent. Here's what you should have done, Governor Newsom, because this would have been much, much harder. Hate crime or hate speech. Do it as hate speech. Say anyone in the state can sue someone, regardless of whether the speech was directed to them or not, regardless of whether they were actually offended. Um, if someone says something that could be found offensive uh, by someone else under a definition of hate speech that you can make up, it's $10,000. The justices, it would have such a chilling effect on free speech in most respects, the number one right in the Bill of Rights. That would create a real tension, I think, for someone like Neil Gorsuch in a way that the Second Amendment, $10,000 to someone who sells... Um, an assault rifle or a ghost gun kit is having is going to have the exact opposite effect. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, I agree with you completely. I mean, the court is not going to flip around immediately on on this issue because guns are involved. That's just not going to happen. I mean, Gorsuch would be happy to do basically find and replace on the opinion and just swap out guns and the California. Uh, whatever, you know, the Senate bill or House bill it is yeah. for abortion and SBA. And also, this was briefed to the Supreme Court. This isn't like they didn't think about it. There was a whole amicus brief on this exact issue. So there's no gotcha here. Right, right. There's no gotcha. And then the other thing is, the thing that's interesting to me is that where what is the Supreme Court precedent that Newsom is, is defying here? There, there isn't one. Okay, so as you said, as of right now, California, California's very strict gun control regime has been upheld in the Ninth Circuit. Um, this, this is not defying the law. Now, defying the law would be if um, the Supreme Court rules there is a right to bear arms and that any may issue, uh, uh, that may issue regimes around the country should become shall issue regimes. In other words, uh, you have a right. You have a. You don't have to seek permission from a, a state or local official to carry a weapon outside the home. And if Gavin Newsom then says anyone without a permit issued under prior California law uh, can be sued for ten thousand, directly defying Supreme Court precedent, then he would be replicating Texas. But he's just not. He's not replicating Texas. This is this is essentially my law that is enforceable already. <laughs> Under current precedent, I'm adding a new enforcement mechanism to it. So, number one, he's not going to test the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would be very happy to be consistent in its precedent on this point. And number two, he's not even defying precedent. He's not even really defying the law here. Of course, we have to see what an actual bill looks like if such a bill is is ever generated or if this is just a tweet. Um, as of now, it's just a, a tweet and a statement. But yeah, it's not actually doing what Texas did. It's doing what Texas did if you're not fully aware of what Texas did. <laughs> but don't you think my hate speech thing would actually put the court in far more of a pickle? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If hate all of speech. a sudden everyone in the state of California was terrified that if they said something that was not considered in vogue with the speech police of the day that they could be subject to a $10,000 fine. All of a sudden, nobody in California would be posting anything on social media, Twitter, speaking ever, doing interviews um, and the court. And then there'd be no pre-enforcement review. What a disaster. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this would be, you know, if you, and it would be very easy to do, you know, there's examples of university speech codes that used to exist in the state of California that have been struck down in court, including by um, some of my legal teams back in the day, you just put in, say, Cal State, Cal State's old speech code that got struck down in a case we litigated in the mid 2000 or late 2000s. Put that back in and say, that's the speech code for the state of California. And anyone who violates it can be subject to a, ten, a lawsuit for $10,000 filed by anybody. And then you get a sense of exactly what the, what structural damage SB8 style laws due to our constitutional superstructure. So, um, but yeah, Gavin Newsom, it's a ploy. It's not the ploy that he thinks it is. It's not clever at all. 
again, like everyone else thought of this ahead of time, not even original thinking, and it's not going to do what he thinks. It's going to do the opposite. Uh, and there were ways to, I think, force the court's hand. This wasn't one of them. Lame, lame, lame. <laughs> lame. Yeah. But I don't think this is necessarily the end of the line for the SB8 litigation. This could come back up to the Supreme Court in several different ways. Worth mentioning before we leave the topic that the United States one, the federal government saying that they can pop in at any point to vindicate a uh, federal right. Um, no, they dismiss that as improvidently granted. Bye bye. Yeah. So, and the other thing it, it's just worth emphasizing is all of this right now is a temporary artifact of the, of the reality that Roe and Casey are up in the air. Um, and by the end, by the middle of the summer or by the end of June, we're going to know where Roe and Casey stand. And a lot of this is going to be resolved, especially when it comes to Texas and SB8. What is still going to be hanging out there is a, the modified Gavin Newsom ploy. In what way will this precedent be used to engineer the temporary deprivation of other constitutional rights? That's going to be sort of left hanging out there. The Newsom ploy doesn't doesn't push us, um, but the the potential of a improve a new employee two is definitely still out there. All right. Speaking of California, Sarah, should we stay in California for a moment and talk Let's about vaccine it. mandates? Yep. All right. So this is a case um, earlier this, earlier this month. John Doe, Jane Doe, Jill, and as parents of Jill Doe. <laughs> anonymous minor child sued the San Diego Unified School District to try to obtain a religious exemption to the vaccine mandate. And what the Ninth Circuit did, a majority, so the Ninth Circuit, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, what, what, the two, the, what the majority did is essentially say, look, Employment Division v. Smith is in controls. This is, in fact, a general law, a neutral law of general applicability, even though it contains some other it contains some exemptions that it permits from the vaccination mandate, but without permitting a religious exemption, the exemptions it permits are pretty limited. A medical exemption that has to be renewed, certified by a doctor and renewed, and some temporary exemptions that are related to people who are kind of in a transient state, like maybe they're uh, kids of military, of military or they're homeless. They're kind of moving maybe in and out of school districts. And so they have about a 30-day grace period to get a um, uh, to get a vaccine. And people who are under these IEPs, individual educational programs, because there's a very complicated regulatory structure around those and interference with an IEP is very difficult. So they're going to grant these three limited exemptions, but not religious exemptions. And so the question in that is, if you grant those three limited exemptions, but not a religious exemption, is it still a general law of neutral applicability? And this gets into the strength of the Smith, um, of the Smith precedent. And what the majority essentially says is, look, because the exemptions that exist do not have any real substantive, either still continue to advance the district's interest in the health and safety of its students. And they said that the medical exemption to the, uh, to the vaccine requirement advances health and safety or are so temporary or immaterial that they don't interfere with the interest of advancing health and safety of students, that there is no law, A, targeted at religion, or be inconsistent with advancing the health and safety of the students. Therefore, this is a neutral law of general applicability. Case closed. This is over. Doesn't violate Smith. No religious exemption. Period. End of discussion. The dissent says, hold on. Hold on. You're defining the government's interest all wrong here. What the government's interest is, is not some sort of vague, gauzy health and safety of students. It is the government's interest is, is against transmission of COVID-19. And if you have exemptions that are non-religious that inhibit the government's, that, that interfere with the government's interest of preventing transmission of COVID-19, and you grant that in some areas, but not religion, then Smith doesn't apply. We got to go to scr strict scrutiny. And therefore, 
we need to hold things in place while this is more fully developed. So that's basically the way this case came out. And I've got a couple of questions and thoughts here, Sarah. One is, yeah. So here's thought number one. Thought number one is why it seems that San Diego had an own goal here. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a lot of the the better constructed sort of vaccine mandate scenarios do this. They're what they really are, mask plus testing mandates with a vax, an ability to get a vaccination to get out of the max mask plus testing requirement. Um, why, why didn't San Diego do that here? So that's, that's one question. And question number two is, are we ever going to get a court decision on whether or not a vaccine vaccine mandate can meet strict scrutiny. To me, that's a that's the much more interesting question. Can a vanda- vaccine mandate meet strict scrutiny? And I say in some circumstances, it can. Maybe Flesh not out. in this circumstance. Yeah, tell me a circumstance where a vaccine mandate could meet strict scrutiny. I think a vaccine, well, let me back up. I think a vaccine, a mask plus testing regime with a vaccine, if you get your exempt from va- masking plus testing, if you get a vaccine, would meet strict scrutiny for individuals who are inescapably in close quarters with each other. So if you're working on an assembly line, if you are in, a, you know, working as, an, uh, as a flight attendant, if you're in circumstances where close contact with individuals is an inevitable part of your either your job or your role as a student, I could easily imagine in the middle of a pandemic how masking plus testing or vaccination would meet strict scrutiny. Although in that case, how do you have a religious objection to the masking and testing? So how do you even get to strict scrutiny? Oh, that's been tried. (laughs) I know, but like that, I, you almost fail on the other part, on the other side of the equation Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, no, that, but that's why I think of San Diego as having the own goal here. Yeah. Masking plus testing that you can escape by vaccination seems to be the way to advance your public health goal uh, in a manner that could even meet strict scrutiny if a religious objection is is raised to it. Going with the vaccine without the masking plus testing and the vaccine only, it's going to be hard for me to see how it's going to meet strict scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, as we have said repeatedly with pandemic law, it, the government's interest changes over time. Yes. And that's, I should say current. Yeah. 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 It doesn't mean it can't go back up, although it has certainly been waning, uh, since the start of the pandemic, maybe there was a slight spike around Delta in terms of the government's interest or police powers. Um, but uh, you know, I, I thought you were going to say you could see strict scrutiny being met with a different type of virus. Oh yes, for sure. I I think that uh, absolutely correct. Yeah. Like there's a Ebola style, you know, 30% death rate virus. And I think that the government's interest changes. Well, and also this virus in different settings. So, for example, nursing homes, um, as opposed to, you know, a, a vaccine mandate if I'm working around people who are 80 and 85 and medically vulnerable, as opposed to a vaccine mandate for 16-year-olds who, by and large, are not threatened by this virus to nearly the same extent as people at the, as they get steadily older. So, yeah, I do think that there are different scenarios regarding strict scrutiny where a vaccine mandate could meet strict scrutiny, A, with a different virus, B, with a different virus in these circumstances, and C, where the virus, the vaccine mandate is only really part and parcel of a masking and testing mandate. So that's where I could see it. Um, But your your challenges to masking plus testing or vaccine mandate are much more going to be related to sort of you know, for for example, that's the the proposed Biden OSHA or the Biden OSHA standard, and that one really is much better challenged on the basis of failures in 
you know, the much better challenge on the basis bases that we've talked about before, including does Congress have the authority to do that? Could Congress did Congress delegate that authority if it had that authority? Does this meet the requirements of the Occupational Safety and Health Act? Those are much more viable challenges than a religious challenge to masking or testing or masking and testing or vaccine. True enough. Just my two cents. Just my two cents. So that's it, Sarah. I think are we done? It. Are we it's done short. that early? I know. See, this is the problem. The SBA thing, like it was too much and too little. Yeah, it was an important decision that was actually a lot simpler than I thought it would be. Kind of. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, hey, I do have one funny thing that we can finish on. Okay. You mentioned... Uh, IEPs. And Judge Elrod of the Fifth Circuit had a great footnote that we haven't gotten to. It was a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, yes. We... Sad. Uh, <laughs> it comes out of a case from the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act idea. And she writes this incredibly coherent opinion explaining the outcome. <laughs> but in footnote two, she says, Although the party's briefs, the record on appeal, our case law, and even IDEA itself contain an alphabet soup of administrative acronyms, we will spell things out for the sake of clarity. Uh, individualized education program as an IEP, for instance. For those who prefer acronymic efficiency, however, our holding is roughly as follows. RISD did not violate IDEA with respect to KS because as the SEHOs correctly found at the DHPs, one, the ARDC's IEPs for KS, which included PLAAFP statements, TEKS goals for KS's grade level, various accommodations, and a transition plan, were appropriately individualized in light of KS's LSD. <laughs> Two, no actionable violation resulted from wrongly excluding KS from the September MDR, which reviewed KS's prior FIEs, FBA consultations, his IIE. Miss H's report of KS's ADHD and OHI, TBI, and mood disorders, and concluded that KS's L SLD did not cause him to commit the assault for which he was assigned to DAEP. And in sum, the D court did not err in holding that KS received a FAPE in the LRE in compliance with IDEA. <laughs> <laughs> That's spectacular. Well That's done, clerk, who did all of that. That was <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you saying it was a clerk who did all of that? I think some clerk had a lot of fun in the kitchen <laughs> and they were like, ah, looks like a good footnote to me. Um, oh, one other thing on the 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 California case before we move on. Again, about an own goal. So amongst the people who are get granted exemptions. It says exempted students, despite being unvaccinated, are permitted to attend in-person classes and participate in extracurricular acti activities if they comply with non-pharmaceutical interventions, face coverings, regular asymptomatic testing. No similar accommodation is offered to students who are unvaccinated for religious reasons. Um, you can have a problem there. You're going to have a problem there because that, that starts to look much more like singling out. But Anyway, I just wanted to highlight that. And can we revisit something else that we talked about very briefly? Okay. We talked about judicial take, uh, take backs on senior status. Yeah. And we talked about take backs on senior status. And you and I both said, okay, if it's a take back that is based on trying to dictate my, who my successor is, in other words, handing down the scepter to the chosen, um, to the heir, what if it is based on wanting to make sure that who my successor is not? Yeah, same thing. Not okay. No. Not okay. No. All right. That's the same thing. Same thing. Uh, hey, David, I, I forget. Did I do the mailbag question about what happens if a justice dies? No. I didn't? No, I don't think so. I think you just tweeted that out. I didn't tweet it. You tweeted that we would talk about it, I thought. Oh. Or emailed, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so we had a question about what happens if a justice dies before 
an opinion comes out, for instance, in Dobbs, let's say, you know, or one of these cases that's really close. Uh, and the answer is very clear. Until the opinion has actually been issued by the court, if a justice is removed for any reason, that opinion no longer has their vote. So it's not the conference meeting where they, you know, sort of do a show of hands. Um, it doesn't matter whether they pinky swore to you the night before that they, you know, were 100% sure that was their vote and they weren't going to change it, that the thing's already gone to the printer. None of that. It is the next morning when the chief gavels in the court and, and issues the opinion from the bench, or at least that was the pre-COVID way to issue opinions. Um, I suppose when they posted online is now the issuance of opinions, though we'll see when we get to June how they're actually doing that. Um, and so, yes, if Justice Breyer announced his retirement, if Justice Thomas got hit by a bus, um, if Justice Kavanaugh decided to become one of the astronauts to visit Mars, <laughs> their vote would be subtracted from whatever side they had been on. And by the way, if you have an opportunity now or at any time to become an astronaut to Mars, I totally understand and excuse your absence on that basis. That's true. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like the court recently said in that Ninth Circuit opinion, justice are, justices are appointed for life, not eternity. And so until that opinion is out, you do not get to carry on your posthumous vote. Correct. All right. Well, my goodness, I did not think that our Texas SB8 discussion podcast would end up being one of the shortest podcasts we ever did. But there it is. We're concise. We're concise. All right. Well, we will be back on Thursday. Uh, we've got already some topics cooking in the back of our minds for Thursday that you're not going to want to miss. Uh, in the meantime, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and check us out at thedispatch.com.